Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 15 through 21 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, take that pew Bible there in front of you and open up to page 1124. 1,124 there. You can join in there. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, you can just take that one with you. We'd love for you to have that. I'd rather be read at your house than sitting here alone all week. And uh, we'll replace that with another one. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. If you have your Bibles open there, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Beginning of verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, that is, that the Pharisees were seeking to kill him, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And O God, we thank you for the fact that you don't need anything but you to be happy. But God, we thank you for the invitation you've given each of us into your own joy, into your own happiness, into your delight. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you this question. I don't want anybody to yell out any names here, but uh, let me ask you this question. Have you ever met an egomaniac? Somebody, somebody here is probably thinking, I'm listening to one right now. You know, Have you ever met someone who is just obsessed with themselves? Obsessed with themselves. People who will take almost anything and try to make it about them, to try to puff themselves up, to try to put themselves in a good light. Somebody's just obsessed with themselves. In fact, I would argue it's one of the most off-putting things you can experience in another human being is when they are just so obsessed with themselves that they become an egomaniac. And I think it might be that some of us recoil, even this week as you read this title in the chimes, you might have said, I don't know about this. It makes me uncomfortable to think about God delighting in God. We've heard it over the years. There are no mirrors in heaven, right? That's one kind of joke people use from time to time to talk about the fact that we won't be so focused on ourselves there. And yet, then what does it mean to have a God who's focused on himself, a God who delights in himself, a God who loves himself? We may recoil at this idea, but I want you to know that Scripture shows that God is totally and completely delighted and satisfied and happy 
in God. God has no needs. God has no wants. God has nothing that God can't satisfy. And I think this is a very good thing. Because if what we believe is true, which is that God is the supreme good of the universe. Every Sunday I come here and try to show you from the scriptures, don't try to put your hope in this world. Don't try to put hope in yourself. Don't try to put hope in a political party. Don't try to put hope in this. Don't try to put hope in a man-made philosophy. Don't try to put hope in that. Instead, put your hope in God. Only He can supremely satisfy. If that's the truth, I think it is that God is the supreme good of the universe, then for God to be the supreme good of the universe, He wouldn't be able to look anywhere else but Himself to find happiness, to find supreme good. God must delight in Himself if He's worthy of us giving everything to Everything. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, Luther said. There's only one who can delight in Himself perfectly and purely. And so you may delight in something you do. I, for one, love to laugh at my own jokes and, and uh, tell myself stories and things like that. And Whitney always says, you really love to laugh at your own jokes, don't you? And I say, why would I tell one if I didn't think it was funny? You know, that why would I impose that on someone else? You may find some joy in yourself. Not, not all of that's bad. In fact, the Bible says we should love our neighbor's as ourselves. It's not inherently wrong to care about yourself, to love yourself, to feed yourself, to enjoy who God made you to be. But we all recognize that that love of self can turn into something toxic and cancerous in our own hearts and souls if we're not careful. And that is because we are fallen. That's because we're imperfect. That's because someone else is greater. Something else is greater. God cannot say that. He is the only one who can delight in himself perfectly and purely. Only God can do that. This is part of the beauty of the fact that the Lord is one God in three persons. We can see in the pages of Scripture the love and the delight which God has within Himself, the, the Godhead, God Himself, within these three persons in one God, there is overflowing. It is a, an absolute supernova star of delight and love within the Godhead. And this morning, from this passage, I want to show you four truths about God's delight in God. Uh, four truths about God's delight in God. Here's the first. God delights in God's godness. Now that might just sound silly to some of you. Some of you probably wish there was another O in there. God delights in God's goodness. It's a little easier to understand. But no, God delights in God's godness. That is who God is at His core, His essence, or his being, whatever it is it means for God to be God, God delights in that. I love this passage because it's Matthew picking up a passage from the prophet Isaiah chapter 42, this beautiful picture 
opening up a section of the prophet Isaiah that we call the servant songs, describing in so many ways in these passages what a coming Messiah would look like. And here we see in both Isaiah in the Old Testament and now in Matthew in the New Testament, we see this light shining back on this sumptuously furnished room, this light of the New Testament shining back and revealing to us and helping us see that a passage like this from Isaiah is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what happens here in these first two verses. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, God says, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Then what does God go on to say? I will put my spirit upon him. Here, this is the the third time or the second time out of three in Matthew's gospel that we have this phrasing, behold my servant, or I am well pleased, or in whom I am well pleased. The first, of course, is at Jesus' baptism, which we'll look at in a few weeks. And the third is at the transfiguration, when God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the glory of Christ explodes out of him in a way that the disciples can see with their own eyes. And he goes on there, if you look back at Jesus' baptism, you see the way that, that the Father speaks out, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him, and the Spirit descends upon Him like a dove. These are Trinitarian texts. And here God is speaking in a pattern that He first established back in the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew's picking this back up to help us see it, showing the way that God is pleased with God. The way they work in perfect Concert. Here you have God's servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And you see the, the Father speaking about Him. I am well pleased with Him. I delight in my servant. And then you see Him putting His Spirit upon Him the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in concert. You can see perfect love and infinite love in their life together. My friends, there is perfect contentedness in the Godhead. Perfect contentedness. This is my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him as it has always been. So it will always be that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly love one another. There's perfect love in the Godhead. There's infinite love in the Godhead. I love folks. I love my family, but I don't love them perfectly. And I I like to think that there's nothing that could ever happen that would cause my love to cease for my family, but maybe there's something that's never the case with God. His love is perfect. It's beautiful. There's imminent, perfect, glorious clarity in the love of God, but there's also infinite size in the love of God. It's perfect. He's perfectly content. He's Perfectly content to delight in himself. Something we must remember. God was okay being God. God was perfectly contented and perfectly delighted in being God. God's never been lonely. God's never had a need. There's never been a moment where God needed someone else. He has all he needs right in himself. But... You might say, doesn't God love me? 
doesn't God care about me? Well, goodness gracious, wouldn't I? If God doesn't love you, it's time for me to find something else to do. I'm sure not going to go to the Southern Baptist Convention this week and put myself through that if Jesus doesn't love us. No, of course God loves you. But God's love for you and His desire for a relationship with you is not because of some lack or loneliness in God. This is such good news for you. We, we don't, I, I'd say this in premarital counseling all the time, or to someone who's single and they long for someone else around them, or, or someone who's trying to live vicariously through their children, and I say, you are looking to fill some lack in yourself that someone else can't fill. There's a pressure that gets put on us when we're trying to fill up what's lacking in someone else. Now, can you imagine how awful it would be if we were trying to make God happy? <laughs> Can you imagine the pressure you would feel? You can't make anybody happy, can you? Much less God. No, God is infinitely happy in Himself. He didn't need a child or a companion or a friend. He's all of those things in Himself. That's why I think guilt is such a poor motivator, because it makes it, poor old God's over there just wishing you'd come say hello. God's just fine being God. He's just fine being God. Guilt's a terrible motivator. God desires to know you and to love you, but not because of a need. Instead, God's love for you spills over from His love within Himself. You are being invited into. You have a love put upon you that God has had for His Son and for His Spirit and for the Father. For all eternity, that love has now been put on you through Christ. You see the beauty of this? God's love for you is not because of a lack within Himself. Instead, His delight in His people erupts forth from His delight with Himself. It never ends. It never ceases. That's why the Bible can say that though we may deny Him, He will not deny... Well, that the Bible says, not that. It says if we deny Him, He will deny us. But the Bible says that he will love us always because He cannot deny Himself. When you're invited into the life of God, God won't stop loving you because God loves God. And God is delighted in God's Godness. There's never been a moment where He wasn't. Second of all, not only does God love you because God loves God, but second of all, God delights in God's justice. God delights in God's justice. Now, this opening salvo of glory in Isaiah 42 that Matthew's quoting here is such a beautiful thing. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And then the text goes on to begin describing different attributes of God that are contained within this servant whom we know to be Jesus Christ. This servant who's been commissioned by the Father and who is, has the Holy Spirit rested upon him and is, who, is, who is delighting the Spirit with his work. This servant has within himself these beautiful attributes of God we know because he is God. And we see the way God is delighting in this servant. He is delighting in the Son. The Spirit is delighting in the Son and the Father. And the Bible gives us just a few things here, one of which is God's justice that describe who God is and describe what God is like. They're exemplified in the Son in whom God is well pleased. 
And first we see this justice. You see this? God is perfectly and infinitely just. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The proclamation of the justice to the Gentiles is important in particular because God is delivering those who are oppressed by ungodly, wicked leaders and rulers by His grace and also He's judging those who do not carry out His justice appropriately. My friends, we need both. We have to desire both. If we desire true biblical justice, we have to desire for those who are being oppressed, those who are being mistreated, in many cases by the devil himself in this fallen world we live in. We want God to deliver them from that wickedness, but we also need to desire and long for wickedness to be punished. This is a picture here then of the way God's justice will ultimately prevail. This, this servant, Isaiah is telling us, and Matthew's picking this up. The servant is not here simply to bring justice to God's chosen people in Israel. He is here to make even the Gentiles receive God's justice and that all the world might know God and love God and treasure God. To the point that the gospel even made it to a big building full of pagans in Gadsden, Alabama. The Bible talks about Gentiles, folks. That's us. Now, we're Baptist Gentiles now, but we're Gentiles nonetheless. We thank God for His grace. You see, so much of the tumult in the world centers around a desire for justice. But we have to remember that God delights in God's justice. We find ourselves impatient, frustrated with the lack of justice in the world. But we have to remember that God doesn't count time like we count time. Peter tells us that a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And there's no, no being in the cosmos more patient than God. The Bible seems to indicate that the tarrying of the Lord is to give more and more opportunity for people to repent and believe the gospel. But we cannot forget that God is our only source of true justice, and we have to recognize that He is at work to bring justice into the world into His own time. We can't grow impatient. We can't grow frustrated. God delights in the justice of God. He is perfectly and infinitely just, and one day He will bring His justice to bear in the world. But at the same time, we cannot forget that God is love. God is infinitely and perfectly just, but He's also infinitely and perfectly merciful. And that's our third point this morning. God delights in God's mercy. God delights in God's mercy. Matthew's quoting this here as Jesus withdraws from these crowds. In particular, I think because of verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. We live in an age where people celebrate owning people. Brutal takedowns. You're never going to believe the way this person destroyed this crying poor sap of a human being over here or whatever else. That's the world we live in. People delight. I mean, people love quarreling. Folks love crying aloud. In Boaz, we call that hollering. Folks love trying to be heard in the streets. Have you noticed this? Folks just holler a lot these days. I don't know if it's always like this. I don't think, surely not. It's all you hear. 
people doing these things. But Jesus removes himself from this situation precisely because he's not there to quarrel. He's not there to cry aloud in the streets. God doesn't, didn't send his son into the world to own us or to take us down. But instead, what does the Bible say? He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. God delights in God's mercy. Look at verse 20. Think about it. This isn't something the Son's talking the rest of the Trinity into. It's not like the Son's saying, come on, Father, please, just let me, please let me just go show them mercy. No, God's saying, I delight in this servant. I delight in him, and my spirit is upon him. And this servant who in his chest carries the fullness of the Godhead, all of God was pleased to dwell in him. He doesn't go trying to pick fights and holler and take people down. What does he do? He delights in mercy. He won't even break a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. He will not quench. This is a reflection of all that it means for God to be God. God delights in this. And you can see His Spirit is this way as well, because His Spirit is resting upon the servant. My friends, I want you to know, if you thrust yourself upon the living God by faith, you will find mercy there. Not reluctance, not standoffishness, but pure Welcoming, gracious, loving mercy. God wants you to come to Him. God the Father wants you to come to Him. God the Son wants you to come to Him. God the Spirit even now perhaps is working in your heart, saying in your heart even now, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to God. But I'm tired and I'm broken you say, a bruised reed he will not break. But my, my fire has grown cold. There's not hardly even an ember left. A smoldering wick he will not quench. God delights in God's mercy. I've told you this. I've told you this so many times during this series. There's never been a two-to-one vote in the history of God. God delights in being God. And part of what it means for God to be God is to show you mercy. So often we look at God like a compassionless, angry judge. God is infinite in His justice. There's no question about that. But at the same time, God desires to show mercy. God wouldn't be gracious if he wasn't just. God wouldn't be gracious if he wasn't just. If justice didn't exist, if there wasn't something to be forgiven for, if we had never rebelled, God wouldn't need to be gracious. God wouldn't need to be merciful. But your sin is a contributing factor that brings you and thrusts you upon the bosom of the living God, and he welcomes you with joy because it's in his very nature. It's down to the very bones of God to be merciful to you who he is it's what he does he won't even break a bruised reed he won't even quench a smoldering wick 
My friends, God wants to be merciful to you. This servant that Isaiah prophesied about came into the world so that the world might be saved through him. Do you see it? Do you see it? I hope you do. That leads us to our last point, our fourth point this morning. God delights in God's saving power. God delights in God's saving power. God loves to save sinners. God loves to save sinners. We live in a world that seems to have gone crazy. And I I think one of the things as Christians that we're working on doing is stealing our resolve to stand strong in a world that seems to celebrate sin in new and unique ways that we never could have imagined even five or ten years ago. But I'm afraid that we're working so hard, as we ought to, at making sure we have still spine, that sometimes we forget the other work we need to do, which is reminding ourselves of the fact God loves saving sinners. That's what Paul does. He lists out a long list of sins that would make every Baptist in the room blush. And then what does he do? And such were some of you. God delights in God's saving power. Do you see what the text says? You see the beauty of this. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. God delights in God's saving power, and ultimately he will bring justice to victory. Ultimately, he will make this world right. Ultimately, he will bring justice to the world, and in so doing, he will wipe away the tears from every eye. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. And the Gentiles even will hope in God. He's not only making and renewing and beautifying and glorifying Jerusalem for the sake of his chosen Jewish people, those physical descendants of Abraham, but instead of doing that, he is bringing the new Jerusalem down, the book of Revelation teaches us, to earth and transforming the whole earth and all the kings of the world, not just the kings of Israel, but all the kings of the world will bring their glory and their crowns and put it at the feet of Jesus. He is transforming everything and every single soul that's ever walked the face of this earth has hope in God and God alone. It's the only hope we have. Even the Gentiles hope in his name. And it's he and he alone who will bring justice to victory. And you see the way that God, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, is bringing justice to victory and giving hope to all who would call on his name. Even people like us. God delights in God's saving power. God is able to save. God is powerful to save. God is willing to save. And He delights in saving sinners. God has deep and abiding joy in expressing His saving power by making this world whole through the gospel of His Son. Would you marvel at God today? Would you marvel at this God whom we call Father, would you marvel at this God who sent His only Son into the world to save sinners? Would you marvel at this God who dwells in your very heart through His Spirit? Marvel at this perfectly content 
God who had everything He needed and everything He wanted. But because He is so glorious and because He is so infinitely loving, nonetheless created us and revealed Himself to us and set His love and His mercy upon us, the very love which God has had forever and ever for Himself has overflowed out of His 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 rightful privacy and has come into this world which He created and that love which God has for Himself has been set upon you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marvel at God. What beautiful truth it is that God created us and revealed Himself to us and set His love and His mercy upon us. And I hope as you see God's delight in God that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I hope and pray that as you see God's delight in God, it will draw your eyes away from lesser things and say, if this is what God is focused on, God who knows everything, who sees everything, if God is delighted in God, shouldn't I be delighted in God? I hope you'll see it, and I hope it will light a fire in your heart that marvels at God, that results in exultation and worship of God, because God is so perfect and so glorious. I hope that as you see God's delight in God, it will ignite in you delight in God. Love for God. David says it like this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. We live in a dark world. We live in a tough world. But there's only one place to go where you can trust that you can put everything there. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, you can today. He delights in showing you mercy. He delights in His own saving power. If you will turn from your sins, you know where they're getting you. They're getting you nowhere. And worse than that, you turn to God, commit your life to Him, you will never be let down ultimately. If you'll turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, I believe you will be saved today. Second of all, you may be a believer. You may say, Pastor, I need some moments to pray and ask God to ignite a delight for Him in my heart and my soul. This altar is open to you and I'll be here to talk with you as well. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I'd like to invite you to come. Let's pray together.